Good morning. You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. And as you can see, I'm not Pastor Blake. Um, unfortunately, Blake went down with an illness uh, late this week, so I'm filling in the pulpit again for us this week. Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll pick back up in John. And today, what I want us to do with our time is a little different than, than what we're used to. I'm going to be doing a more topical message that, that focuses on the relationship between God's sovereignty or, or God's control of all things and, and our responsibility in, in evangelism or, or the, the proclamation of the gospel that we've been talking about this morning. And we'll be doing this by looking at a particular passages or passage in Romans 10 and 11. But I just want to say up front to set the expectations that I'm not drawing the, or I am drawing the truth for, for this sermon from the text of Scripture, but I'm not exhausting everything the, the passage has to say, which is important. So I'm, I'm not going to be getting into everything Paul intends to communicate to us in, in his passage, as good as that, that stuff is, and we do need to study on it. But I'm going to be focused primarily on what this passage teaches again about our responsibility of sharing the gospel to unbelievers in relation to God being sovereign over who will be saved. So if you heard Romans 10 and 11 and immediately got excited and thought we would be diving into the deep things of Israel's salvation or the, the future of the nation of Israel, then I'm sorry, you'll sadly be disappointed. It's not the purpose of our time this morning in this text. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to start in verse 13 of chapter 10 and end in verse 10 of chapter 11. The Apostle Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without some, someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed that he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will, make you a I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I asked them, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. 
But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it, was, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If God is sovereign over salvation, why should I evangelize? If God is ultimately in control of who or who won't be saved, what is, what is the point in proclaiming the gospel at all? I'm sure we have all encountered this question at some time, whether it be in our own personal thought life or in conversations with others. Maybe you've even heard or even thought, if God has planned to save some individuals for eternal life by his own choice, by his own sovereign will, then what's the point of, of sending missionaries? Why don't we just pray about um, those missionaries that we support? Why do we even do this? Won't God eventually save them if they're actually elect? What, what's, what's the point? If they're actually chosen to be saved? I'm sure we've all felt or, or have had this conundrum in our minds as we ponder and we, we contemplate the, this relationship between our responsibility and proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth and the clear truth of Romans 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, that God is completely sovereign over whom he will save to everlasting life. And friends, I find it a comfort that this is not a problem unique to our own time. As I'm sure you're aware, I really like history, so I'm going to bring it in again. William Carey, um, often called the father of the modern global missionary movement, he encountered this same ten- tension and, and error in 18th century England. Carey was convinced that the Great Commission passage in Matthew 28, the very famous passage, to, to go make disciples of all nations, he was convinced that is binding on modern Christians until the task of evangelism is complete amongst the nations, until every tribe, tongue, and nation has heard the, the glorious gospel proclaimed in their land. Now, it may surprise us to know that Kerry faced severe pushback for this belief from his Baptist brethren. This group of Baptists, or historically known as, as the Particular Baptist, and some of them tended towards a more hyper view of God's sovereignty. They, they saw very little room for the works of act or, or actions of humans in, in salvation. So, these Baptists held a high view of God's sovereignty over salvation, but, but pushed back against Carey's uh, teachings that Christians had to go to the nations, had to go into their cities to proclaim to the laws. And on one famous evening, one particular Baptist pastor was noted saying, after one of Carey's talks about his view of missions, 
this pastor said to Carrie, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. The Apostle Paul in our text this morning confronts this very very error in thinking. You see, for Paul, though there is tension in these truths on on God's sovereignty and, and our responsibility, he affirms both to be true without hesitation, without even clarifying at times. God is sovereign over who will be saved, meaning God has chosen before the foundation of the world to bring some to eternal life and others to be passed over and judged in their sin. So God God is sovereign. He's in control over who will be saved. And we have a responsibility to, to evangelize the lost, to proclaim the gospel to the lost so that they might be saved. And I want to look and investigate Paul's argument here in this section of Romans under two headings. These will be our two main points if you're taking notes. And the first is, is the means of saving faith. The means of saving faith. And our second point will be the mystery of God's grace. The mystery of God's grace. So the means of saving faith and the mystery of God's grace. So first, let's look at the means of saving faith. Faith, not saving face. So notice in the text that, that Paul claims in verse 13 that, that whoever, whether Gentile or Jew, whoever, anybody, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a, a guaranteed promise in God's word. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So in verses 14 and 17, Paul gives us a series of of rhetorical questions to show the the steps or or the means necessary for a person to do that, to to call on and put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul gives four successive questions that build on each other to to illustrate the, the process of how someone can come to have a saving faith and knowledge of Christ. So look down, notice that Paul writes in verses 14 and 15. How can they call on him whom they haven't believed? And how are they to believe in who they haven't heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So just notice that there's a progression. Notice the progression is such that that calling on the Lord is preceded by belief in the gospel. And belief in the gospel is preceded by, by hearing the gospel. And hearing the gospel is preceded by someone proclaiming the gospel. You can just substitute that, that word preaching for, for proclaiming the gospel. And someone proclaiming the gospel is preceded by someone being sent to proclaim or preach the gospel. So there's a clear method, a, a, you could call it a structure, in Paul's understanding of gospel proclamation and, and receiving salvation. And so Paul is using these rhetorical questions to argue there's a, a clear line of successive steps that are the means, the, the way saving faith occurs in an individual who, who embraces and submits to the gospel of Jesus. Someone who, who, as verse 13 says, who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. 
I was trying to think of an illustration to, to help us get what Paul's getting at, and all I could come up with was it's kind of like the steps or the means by which a crop is cultivated. So as you all know, by now I'm a, I'm a city boy and don't know much about farming, but I do have Google, which is helpful. There are necessary steps a farmer must take to yield a crop. So Google says. So picture a farmer saying, how will you have a producing crop unless the seed is planted in fertile ground? And how will the seed be planted in fertile ground unless the ground is plowed? And, and how will the ground be plowed unless someone is sent to plow it? You see the connection I'm trying to make? I'm sure I missed something there in the step. The point is there, there are steps, there are means by which a, a crop is yielded, is, is cultivated. And in a similar way, Paul is saying there are means by which saving faith is brought about in the Christian's life. I think verse 17 is a good summary of Paul's teaching in this section. He writes, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing. So it's clear that a a necessary component to saving faith in an individual's life is hearing. Hearing words. So I think it's safe to assume the Apostle Paul would not approve of the the often quoted from well-meaning Christians saying, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. And he wouldn't approve of it because, you see, the, the proclaiming of the gospel necessarily entails using words. Always. There is no gospel that saves without the truth being proclaimed through words. So saving faith comes through through hearing the gospel proclaimed or or heralded. Paul makes this abundantly clear that a necessary means by which people can come to saving faith, to come to a true knowledge of, of salvation in Christ is through hearing. Well, what is it that they're to hear? What is, it that we're, what is it that we're to proclaim? What is it that we're to preach? What is it that we are to share? Look again down at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ. See, we're not free to proclaim any generic message about God or about gaining a a better life, gaining more wealth or or health, or even just gaining a a sense of self-worth through belief in God. These are very popular messages to proclaim today, even in Christian circles. Now, the message that produces faith is one thing, the word of Christ, and the word of Christ alone. So what Paul means here by the word of Christ is is, is sort of a a summary statement of that entails Jesus' life, his his death, his resurrection, and his lordship over all things. So an implication of Paul's statement in verse 17 is that we must proclaim everything we hear, everything we see in Jesus' ministry, in his life, what we see in the Gospels, what we see in the Word. Meaning we must proclaim to the lost that we have all sinned. We have all 
fallen short of God's perfect righteous standard, and we all deserve to be eternally punished by God's wrath for our unfaithfulness. And yet we also must proclaim that, that Christ died on the cross to appease the wrath of God so that anyone that believes in him, and I mean anyone that believes in him, will not perish but, but gain eternal life. And we also must proclaim that Jesus didn't stay dead. But he rose after three days to conquer death and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father right now as Lord of all, ruling over his creation. And so now we all owe our entire lives to Christ. Every single one of us must submit our lives to Jesus as Lord and ruler of our lives. That is the word of Christ. This is the word of Christ we must proclaim to everybody. In short, we call this the gospel. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, and you haven't put your full trust in him, you do not call him Lord. Make today the day that you trust him. You trust his promises in this gospel. They're for you. The word of God is clear, as Paul said right in Verse 13, anybody that calls on the name, anybody that cries out to Jesus for salvation will be saved. So I plead with you, if you do not trust Christ today, to, to make today that day and don't let another moment pass. Now I want to focus on, on two things I think this text explicitly and implicitly calls us to as, as a local body, as a church. And that is global missions, global missions and personal evangelism. So first, global missions. Notice that in verse 15, Paul writes that those that preach must be what? They must be sent. They must be sent. And so we need to be a people that send Christians to, to proclaim the truth of the gospel to those who have never heard it. There are countless stats on this, but there's this multitude of people, countless souls that are perishing every day, eternally, eternally perishing with no access to this gospel, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying in this text is that they cannot call on the name of the Lord unless individuals are sent, unless Christians are sent to proclaim the name of the Lord. So listen, I don't think we can ever grow numb to this reality. It has got to impact us to, to, to action. Our, our love for the, the, the perishing of lost souls, of, of our lost neighbors, must be our, our motivation to act in, in love towards them by by using any means necessary to get the gospel to them. That's what our, our missionaries do. It's often said, and maybe you've heard this said, uh, that we're all involved in missions in some way. As Christians, we're all involved in missions. We're either goers or, or senders. We're goers or senders. And so maybe some of us in this room are, are actually called to go to places in the world who have never heard the gospel or who have little access to the gospel. 
And maybe you're just coming up on a season of retirement and, and freedom where you, you have the, the health and resources to sacrifice everything for the sake of saving some through proclaiming this gospel to the lost. I just encourage us to seek the Lord in this. Ask him to make it clear to you if you should go to the nations. Make it a part of maybe of your, your monthly or weekly prayer habits. But whether we go or not, we should all, I think, support and, and, do, and send missionaries. We're so blessed to be members of a, of a, a local church that emphasizes global missions like we do here. There's just ample opportunity at EF to invest in, in our current international workers or those that are, are equipping workers for the harvest. These are very important ministries that we get to tangibly help. A simple thing that we can do is just commit to pray. Commit to pray for our missionaries regularly. We can give to them financially. We can Call them, get to know their story. I'm sure they would love to, to hear from us and how their ministries are doing. And listen, really just the, the general point I'm trying to get across is that, that there's, there's really no greater endeavor that you can give your life to and support than, than taking this gospel, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who've never heard it. But we know, right, we, we, we all know this, that we're not all going to the nations to proclaim the gospel. It just doesn't work that way. That's not God's calling on each of our lives. But I do think this text implies we should be burdened to proclaim the gospel where we are now. A massive implication in this text is that we must be faithful in, in our personal witness to non-believers or our personal evangelism to the lost. And so I just want to challenge us this morning, do, do we actually live like we believe that saving faith only comes through hearing the gospel? Which is only heard if, if we proclaim it, if Christians proclaim it. Do we functionally live that out? Just think of the lost people you know in your life. Have you proclaimed the gospel to them? Have you shared the good news of Jesus Christ with them? And I don't want to, to unduly guilt you or, or burden you here. And trust me, like I have failed at this many, many, many times. But I do know the weight of this text means we need to have a sense of urgency, a great sense of urgency to proclaim the word of Christ to our lost friends and family. So just think about the, the implication of this text. That person that you love, that doesn't know Jesus, he can't call on the name of the Lord. He can't have true saving faith in Christ unless he hears the gospel, unless he, he hears the truth proclaimed to him with words. That's the, that's the appointed means that God has decreed for all of this to work, for salvation to work. And so I want to encourage you, you and your proclamation very well may be the, the means by which God uses to bring that person to faith. So maybe even just over these next months, uh, over the holidays, perhaps you'll, we'll, we'll have more interactions with our lost friends and family. 
maybe over a holiday meal, I pray specifically these verses will, will come to our minds as we're sitting across from them, our lost friends and neighbors. How can they put their faith in Jesus if they haven't heard? I want that to be ringing in our minds. And how can they hear unless you and I proclaim the gospel to them? So brothers and sisters, let us be bold in our our proclamation of the gospel to the lost. Because it is the, the means of saving faith. Which leads to our second point in our text. Which is the mystery of God's grace. The mystery of God's grace. So it seems Paul has in view both, both Israel and Gentiles in verses 14 through 17 on, on the means by which people get saved. But I do think Israel is on the forefront of Paul's argument, just giving the context of this section of Romans as a whole, of Romans 9 through 11 as a whole. You can just read through it. You see Israel, Israel, Israel. That's the focus of Paul's argument. And Paul's emphasis is on what to do with the promises made to Israel. In verse 16, Paul makes clear that that merely hearing the word of Christ is not sufficient for salvation. But but faith or, or submission to the gospel is also necessary. So Paul is saying Israel in particular, they have heard the gospel. They have heard this good news. And their rejection of the gospel is what is grieving Paul in these chapters. It's not because they they haven't heard the gospel. Paul clearly thinks they have heard the gospel, but it's that they have rejected it. They have rejected it in unbelief. In verse 18, Paul makes this even more clear. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. I take the they there uh, in the verse to be Israel, given Israel's the subject in verse 19. So Paul quotes Psalm 19.4, which Blake just read for us, which teaches that God's glory in creation reaches the ends of the earth. It's a little difficult to interpret what Paul's doing here, um, but I don't think Paul is indicating that the gospel has reached the ends of the earth like completely reach the ends of the earth, because Paul in the same letter says here that he desires to go to Spain with the gospel. He desires to to go to Spain, meaning the gospel has not gotten to Spain yet at the time he was writing this. So I find the the commentator Tom Schreiner's argument persuasive that that Paul's quoting Psalm 19 here to indicate that, that all the earth has heard the gospel rhetorically now that the, the Gentiles have heard the gospel, now that the Gentiles have been included in the plan of salvation after Christ's death and resurrection. The point is that Israel, God's old covenant people, have no excuse. They have definitely heard the gospel because both Jew and Gentile have now heard the gospel. The gospel has gone to all the world in that sense, to all, all types of people, not just one ethnic group. And so in verses 19 and 20, Paul argues not only has Israel heard the gospel of Christ, they should have known 
They should have known that the Gentiles would be included in the people of God if they properly understood their own text, if they understood the Torah or the, the law and the prophets. In verse 19, Paul cites the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And in verse 20, he cites Isaiah 65, 1, to show that it had long been prophesied in the Old Testament that, that God was going to, to find and save those that were never sought after him, the Gentiles, those that were not his covenant people, the non-Israelites. And so Paul ends chapter 10 with this gripping citation of Isaiah 65, 2. We read it in verse 21. He says, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. It's as if Paul is saying, Is there any hope for Israel? Israel has heard and rejected the gospel message Paul has proclaimed. Israel is, is blind to the truths clear in their own sacred writings. They, they don't understand that the, that the Gentiles will be included in the people of God in the fullness of time when the Messiah came. They just don't get it. And God has had his hands outstretched towards his people, his, his chosen people. And the picture Paul is painting here is of a father reaching out to pick up his son. So, so have that image in your mind. This is God's posture towards his people, and Israel rejects him. They, they, they turn away. Paul says they're, they're a disobedient and contrary people. And we're left to wonder, is there any hope left? Is there any mercy left? Is there any grace? Paul says as much in verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, has God rejected his people? Has God pulled back his, his outstretched hands? And Paul responds with an emphatic, by no means. By no means. In verses 1 through 4, Paul gives two evidences for why God has not rejected his people. First, he cites himself, which is a power move. He cites himself, he, being saved by grace and faith in Christ as an Israelite, Paul's speaking about his own life as evidence that God hasn't rejected Israel. And Paul cites a story from the days of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, where God keeps a remnant of 7,000 Israelite men who, who hadn't worshipped Baal when the rest of Israel had gone astray into the, the pagan idol worship. A remnant of faithful Israelites. And Paul states... Pretty remarkably, just like then in Israel's past, God has chosen a remnant of Israel to believe in him now. That's what he says in verse 5 of chapter 11. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. It's a remnant chosen by grace. Paul's arguing that, that post-Jesus Christ, God has chosen a remnant, a small group of Israelites that are chosen by God's grace to, to experience salvation through faith in Christ. And in verse 6, Paul states that this salvation is by grace alone. And by definition, can't be by works. Meaning that, that just like all salvation in the history of the world, the saving only occurs by God's free choice, his, his sovereignly choice to show grace to whom he desires, to save whom he wills. 
Notice in the, the latter half of the verse, Paul says that if their salvation had been from works, then grace would no longer be grace. Grace would no longer be grace. Works-based salvation eliminates grace, always. There's no grace if salvation can be obtained by obedience to God. So listen to what this means. The, the moment we, we incorporate any work into our formula of salvation, whether that's prayer, saying a, a specific prayer, or, or an action like baptism, or, or obeying the law of God, the moment we do that and incorporate it and say it's necessary for salvation, we nullify God's grace. Because by definition, God's saving by His grace alone entails that it is solely by His divine will. And not to do with any human work. And yet, we must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Notice how both of these things in the same text are held up as true. Paul concludes verses 7 through 10 with, with a sobering truth that at this present time, in this age, the majority of Israel has failed to obtain salvation and, a, and they're hardened by God into unbelief. It's a very difficult truth, a very hard truth. But it, it's there. And though this text is about Israel specifically, I do think it applies to people generally, given the context of, of Paul's larger argument about salvation in this section. Especially Romans 9, which we don't have time to get into, but, but this is basically Romans 9's whole point for all people. But the text seems to indicate that the Israelites' unbelief was a result of, of God's hardening of them. So there's, there's, there, there's obviously several interpretations of this text. One is that one argues that, that God hardened the Israelites because of their unbelief. Because the Israelites were not believing in Him, God hardened them in their unbelief, which may be true, but I think it's more clear from the Old Testament citations Paul uses in verses 8 through 10, that it is God who is the one who is decreeing or causing the Israelites not to see and not to hear. It is because of God's hardening the Israelites that they, they do not believe. So Paul's teaching is that, that God saved a remnant solely by His sovereign grace, not by any work of themselves, and He hardened the rest to unbelief. And I think the smart reader looks at that and says, how? How can this be? How can God be just to do this? And friends, there's, there's a mystery here. We don't and we won't fully understand how God can choose or elect someone to eternal life and, and harden and pass over others to eternal damnation. But it's also clear that the Israelites, or the, the Israelites that are hardened into unbelief, are responsible for their sinful decisions in unbelief. So nowhere does Paul say that the, the hardening absolves the Israelites of their unbelief. Or you could say it this way: God is not doing something against their will. It is the, the free choice of them to reject God. 
and how exactly all of this works out between human will and God's will and human responsibility and God's sovereign decrees, how it exactly works out in all the details is mysterious to us. Because we, we exist in a finite condition as creatures. And friends, this is a hard truth. It's hard to, to intellectually understand. It, it's, it's hard to emotionally stomach. But it's true, and I think it should produce humility and gratitude in our lives. That if you're in Christ, if you're sitting in this room, you are in Christ this morning by faith. You need to remember that there was nothing in you, nothing you did, not because of the person you are or the, the family you, you came from, that God chose you to be saved. He chose you. He, he saved you out of, his, out of his own free, wonderful grace, out of his own good pleasure. And that should produce humility in us. It's an antidote against prideful thinking of ourselves and, and how great we are. And we should be grateful that God, before the foundation of the earth, before anything was formed, chose you. Before you did anything good or bad, he chose you to save you, to redeem you, to purchase you into his family, to be adopted as a child in his kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be grateful and to, to worship God and, and to, like we're about to do in a moment, sing to God with a, with a full voice of his great salvation. And the final thing I'll say is that this truth about God's sovereignty over salvation maybe counterintuitively should drive us to action. Listen, Paul knew the tension between God's sovereign choice of some to salvation by his grace alone and the call to proclaim the gospel to everybody. And yet he taught both without reservation, without hesitation, so we should too. We should follow after Paul in this way. So a very practical diagnostic question for you to ask. If, you view, if your view of election or what's called predestination leads to inaction, if that's your view, then you are out of step with Paul's understanding of this doctrine. You're, you're out of step with the Bible's understanding of this doctrine. Because we need to proclaim the gospel. That's what Paul's whole argument here is in Romans 10. We need to, to pray for and send missionaries and even go to those who have never heard the wonderful news of the gospel. And we must be a people that when the question is asked, why should I evangelize if God is sovereign over our salvation? When that's asked of us, we need to be a people who answer with Paul how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? God is the Lord of the harvest. He, he, he will save his own. So we can be confident in our proclamation of the gospel. This is how this truth spurs us into action. We have complete confidence in our proclamation of the gospel because God is Lord of the harvest. He will save whom he will save. It's not how eloquent, it's not how persuasive we are in our evangelism that saves. It's about how faithful we are to the gospel message that has power to save. So we're free from the pressure of having to, to save people through our own 
ingenuity, our own intellect. You see how freeing that is for us. Only our God can, and he promises he will save. So rest in that this morning, Christian. And may it spur us on to be faithful, to be faithful, to, to proclaim the gospel to all people, to all the people that God has placed in our lives that do not know Jesus as Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're so thankful for your word that even when it is hard and and deep and difficult to understand that as our brother Blake preached this mo- or prayed this morning, it does not return void. And so we do ask that, that your word, the purpose of it would, would be accomplished in our lives. Pray that we would hold up these twin truths that, that seem so intention to us that we would hold both of them up in our lives and in our submission to you, that we would trust you in your complete control of the universe, in your sovereign will, and in your sovereign grace to save some, and that we would be faithful to proclaim the gospel to all. Pray that you would um, even bring to mind uh, names and faces right now of people that don't know you, and I pray that you would give us the boldness, the, the creativity, just the faithfulness to share to proclaim the gospel message so that they can hear. And we do ask that through these conversations, Lord, that you would bring many to saving faith in you, that they would call on your name. And we're so thankful for your promise that you will save them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I invite